it's possible. I, I see a convergence of the property types where it's going to be very hard to even describe what something is. It's like we now say live, work, live, work, play. You know, is that a store or is that an office? I, I, I do think that in the future, residences will be built to accommodate outside workers. So that you may have, uh, you know, this, this is like people used to have a loft. Um, they would live in the loft and the workers would come during the day and they would leave at night. There's probably a very interesting market for that that hasn't been tapped yet. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you for joining me today on the Fort. I'm excited to have my really good friend, Andrew Siegel with Boxer Property Company and Stimmons Enterprise back with me today. Andrew and I have spent a lot of time chatting together. We always do, but especially over the last 90 days. And so we're just going to kind of dive through his thoughts on the current environment, uh, the real estate world. Uh, he's actually living out in LA, even though he's a Texan. What what he's seeing differences, uh, West Coast versus Texas and everything in between. So Andrew, thank you for joining me again. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. And um, I guess I could say it's good to be here having uh, survived COVID in, uh, in, in early March. Yep. So you actually uh, had COVID in March and glad to hear that you're healthy and doing well. Can you just speak briefly to that experience? I did. I caught it uh, skiing in, um, you know, at the beginning of uh, the month and um, I thought I had the flu because I didn't have any of the symptoms, so I don't have any horror stories to uh, to report. Uh, I didn't cough. I didn't have any chest pain. I got over it after a couple of days. Now I'm enjoying my immunity for the time being until uh, until immunity wears off, which I'll be I'll be sad to uh, to lose it. When do you lose it? Is it like six months? Well, no, no one no one's lost it yet officially. So I'm hoping not to be the first person. I'll get some warning, but yeah. we, we we just don't know. Yep. Are you doing anything in particular now that you know you've had it? Like, is there any recommendations since you've already had it to do anything different than anybody else would do? Well, I'm I'm basically ignoring the precautions at this point. Is I'm I'm working under the assumption that I'm immune. I'm traveling. I'm meeting people. I'm going places. I feel like a um, I've got the tiger blood. Yeah. Um, I'm able to uh, to get out around the country. I love it. All right. Well, let's just talk about kind of the last 90 days from from your point of view, maybe starting in March to where we are today. I think it's, you know, it, it, it goes it goes up and down. You know, there there are times when things look really good. We've had a fantastic experience um, in our office buildings. We've been collecting virtually all the rent. We've been doing a couple hundred new leases a month. So that's that's been very surprising. I would not have bet on that in March. And even our mall is doing very well in Fort Worth, partially thanks to a uh, you know a governor who wasn't afraid to to open things up. The rest of the country and the rest of the world, it's it's like a roller coaster. There there are some really good good things and some really bad things. What are the bad things? The bad things I think are are retail entertainment 
business travel, I really think that that those things are a long way off um, from getting back to profitability, let alone normal. Um, I think we're going to lose 30 to 50% of the restaurants in our, in our country. We're going to lose a lot more stores, hotels, and just having a, mostly a disastrous time. I think that the, the leisure... The leisure ones seem to be doing better. I guess people are willing to risk their life for a vacation, but not for their dental conference. And anything to do with with entertainment, like casinos and bars and sports and concerts, you know, could be a long a long way off. And with the restrictions that are that are put on them, or that they put on themselves, there there's no way for them to survive as we know them. For that to kind of pick back up, do you think it's more, is it because we have a vaccine? Is it just because people kind of incorporate this now into their day-to-day life and just kind of treat it as it becomes normal? Or like, how do we get to a spot where those things can flourish again, whenever that may be? So I, I, I believe there's only one way and I'm, you know, it's a bit of a controversial, controversial way of looking at things, but I think we need to take basically young people and healthy people and just turn them loose is that they're going to get it. They're not going to go to the hospital and they're going to, they're going to survive and they'll become immune for some period of time. You know, we're, we're, we're treating everyone as equals, which I understand is an, is an admirable way of looking at things. But, you know, the truth is when we go to war, we send the 18 year olds, we don't send the 80 year olds. And, and this is a war that is taking place within our bodies. The young people need to fight it for the older people. Yep. And so under that, that is, you know, more restrictions on maybe call it the over 65s, more kind of government assistance for them and let the, the younger folks fight the war and kind of build us back to where we were. Well, as I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm hoping the number is more like 70 or 75, but there is a number you know, somewhere between 65 and, and 70, where those people need to be warned and they need to stay at home. And the younger people can can really support the economy. We can we could turn baseball and basketball and restaurants and bars and factories back on with people who are under 70. You're always good at, you know, finding good data. Like where are you looking or where are you getting your information as it relates to, you know, what's true and not true. I feel like there's so much information, misinformation around this. Like, where do you go to kind of get comfortable with where things are at? So one of the most reliable sources is TREP, T-R-E-P-P. It's a service that gives data about securitized loans. And they're they're very interesting because they have reporting requirements under unlike bank loans. So you could see what's defaulted. You could see what the comments are um, about it, and it's it's painting a very scary picture. The other thing um, you know I'm looking at in the economy is rent collections in places that are that are reporting accurately. Uh, the UK, for example, is collecting twenty something percent of its retail rent. It's a absolute disaster. It's a catastrophe. What's going on there? Massive hotel defaults. And then from, you know, from looking at what's going on in society, I think that the relevant numbers are the hospitalizations and the deaths. These headlines about new cases have more to do with the 
um, the testing that's out there rather than what's actually going on. So I have two questions. If 30 to 50 percent of restaurants went out or retailers went out, like obviously there's going to be distress in the retail sector. But how do you occupy those buildings again? Is it the way that we've done it historically or are we going to see these used differently? How, How do these assets come back to life? Well, I, th- I think the good news about retail is a lot of it could be repurposed as as office and even, you know, torn down and service sites for residential. They tend to be in good locations and they tend to have a lot of land per per building foot. And and I, I, I think that things like office will come back. I'm total totally disagree with this work from home nonsense. It's a fantasy that lasts a short period of time. But companies are going to have to get people back into the office if they're going to survive, and they're going to need more space than they needed before. So that's Um, that's a hot topic, and you've talked a lot about it. Why do you think it has to be that way as opposed to the new world order of work from homers that think we'll never go back? So for, for a few reasons, you know, number one, I think that productivity declines seriously, probably about 1% per week to a point where it's about 30% less than normal. And companies just don't have the margin to have a 30% decline in total productivity. I think the other thing is is network security. We're having people from large investment banks log on through their cable modem. That's going to be a non-starter at some point. The other thing is, you know, for people who are hourly employees as opposed to salaried where they just get paid a certain amount no matter how much they work. Complying with the hourly salary rules from home is going to become a big problem. What it means is that if someone's starting at 830, they cannot send a, a message at 829. So I think I think that it's possible to work from various places. I think it has to be an office environment to create the focus that's needed to be productive and also to have some of the culture of the the office. Uh, it's very hard to onboard somebody uh, remotely from their home into a, you know into a corporate environment where they have to serve on a team. And when you say one percent decline, I, I think I know the the various reasons why there is. But what what in your view creates that kind of le- less productivity? Folks not being focused, you know, going on walks midday when they might have been working, or how do you think about that? Kids, pets, spouses, the refrigerator, it's just endless. When you think about co-working, so in an office environment, if you own the company, you can kind of do the best to control your environment to where the people showing up to work kind of know what they're getting. In co-working, you know, it's often small teams, but you can't control what the other company sharing that floor with you are doing. Like, how's co-working going to manage this when it's hard to collectively manage what all the different companies are going to be doing and, you know, people not knowing who their neighbors are and all that? Well, the I think the future of co-working is not shared desk. You know, they used to call it hot desks, uh, you know, that, that now has taken on a different meaning. The, the, the future of co-working is individual offices within a shared space. So you may not have your own coffee bar or conference room, but you do have your own room where you 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 can effectively isolate yourself or your team if you want. 
you guys wrote a white paper. Y'all won an award for being, my botches, but like the number one co-working company actually across the country. What's going to happen with like WeWork and Notel and all these huge, massively funded companies that are struggling? Are they are they all done? I, I think they're all done. So, we, I mean, we, we were recognized as the largest financially secure co-working company in the country, you know, which I, I believe is uh, is true. We were number six in terms of total size, but I think we're, we'll be marching up the ladder even if we don't expand at this point. You know, these, these, these companies like Notel and, and, and WeWork are, are done. Like they, they were in massive trouble and didn't make sense before COVID. And it would be a shame if people blamed their demise on COVID because it's really about more fundamental issues. What are those fundamental issues? The fundamental issues really are, you know, a massive misalignment is that they were, rather than being efficient, is that they layered massive amounts of administration into a building environment. So now a building had a manager and the co-working space had a manager and a building had a leasing agent and the co-working space had a leasing agent. It just totally lacked the flexibility. The, the The future is really integrating these things into the fabric of the building. The co-working space should serve the building. It should be run by the building, and it should be available to larger tenants if someone wants to take the whole thing. It should prioritize tenants' ability to expand within the building, and it should provide services that it provides to the small tenants to large tenants like shared conference rooms and meeting spaces and things like that. So there's there's so many advantages to it when the building runs it that disappear when a third party does it. So if WeWork goes out of business, does somebody buy WeWork or does it just kind of vanish? And maybe there's like a lot to unpack there, but okay, if WeWork goes out of business, what happens? Obviously, landlords are not collecting the rent that they were getting from WeWork, but there's millions of square feet of this beautifully built out co-working space that just sits there. Like, how does it get occupied again by another operator or do the building owners just take ownership of it and build their own kind of co-working company kind of to what you were alluding to being able to control it? So in, in my mind, there are two alternatives. One is the building management takes over, does some reconfiguration to make sure that there are a predominance of enclosed offices, which is pretty easy to um, runs it as part of the building. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is a company looking for a large space just comes in and takes it as it's. And, and the future... Of, of office space is going to be less bespoke building spaces for companies who are going to sign a 10 or 15 year lease and more, hey, I'll take this space and make it work because I'd rather have the flexibility. Remember, when a, if a tenant comes in and takes an existing space, you basically have zero credit issue, you know, and, and you're able to offer a much more flexible space. So does somebody, and I, I know, you know, I'm just throwing out ideas, but does somebody end up like buying WeWork and the thousands of memberships of people that are set up and taking ownership of that? Or do they convert all those members to like tenants of the the ownership of the building or like what happens to all these people? I think they convert them to um, ownership. There, there, there will be a dead cat bounce where someone will find value in in the in the company and they'll get crushed as well. <laughs> um, but I, I think at the end of the day, it just 
it goes back. There are probably of the hundreds of WeWorks that it, that exist. I would be surprised if there's more than five or ten of them that are actually profitable and that somebody would pay money to buy the ongoing business not attached to the real estate. So if there's more flexible leases even amongst kind of big companies and there's not these kind of, you know, what we've been used to are these long 10 to 15 year leases with these massive build outs and can you still underwrite the real, like will banks and lenders still underwrite it the same if leases are much more short term in nature or how, how do you think about that? So that's that's the funny thing, because all, all you have to do is say it's a daytime apartment building. You know, if, if you look at multifamily, you have a diversity of tenants. You have no leases for the most part that, that extend over a year. The credit is totally unknown and not really cared about. So I've been positioning our office buildings as daytime apartment buildings without the kids, the pools and the pets. Uh, although now, now we allow pets uh, a lot more. Do some of these office buildings start allowing actual like people to sleep there and live there as well? You've talked a little bit about this hybrid. We've discussed kind of this hybrid model. Do you see that happening to kind of make up for some of this, like getting people more sticky to the buildings? It's possible. I, I see a convergence of the property types where it's going to be very hard to even describe what something is. It's like we now say live, work, live, work, play. You know, is that a store or is that an office? I, I, I do think that in the future, residences will be built to accommodate outside workers so that you may have, uh, you know, this, this is like people used to have a loft. Um, they would live in the loft and the workers would come during the day and they would leave at night. There's probably a very interesting market for that that hasn't been tapped yet. Just amongst the types of office, uh, you're more uh, in kind of what we'd call maybe class B suburban office. If somebody's building like a high rise class A, you know, uptown Dallas, there's millions of square feet of this spec office going up. And then the traditional tenants are these huge corporations that are, you know, at super uh, risk of, you know, they're not coming back as quickly as small businesses are. Is Class A office in for a rough patch, assuming it doesn't have leases in place or already kind of occupied? I I think that as long as they're not transit reliant, they'll be fine. You know, probably their tenants will take more space. Like we we went from a world, you know, when I started my career, people were using about three to three and a half people per thousand square feet of space. And then all of a sudden it was like six to eight, you know, the density massively increased. We're coming back. We're going to start looking at having, you know, eight and, you know, in some places, 10 people per thousand square feet as unsanitary. And again, I, I don't I don't mean to ask questions that make you seem like you know the future, but is that here to stay or is that a temporary short term view and humans will have short memories and it'll go back to eight to 10 quicker than we think? Or you think this is kind of the new norm? I, I It's hard to say, you know, part of it is, is there a mutation out there? Because it, it, it looks like at some point we will have a vaccine and we will kind of deal with this strain of coronavirus. But the, you know, the question is, what does COVID-21 look like? Is it more deadly? Is it more spreadable? Or are we just 
you know, concerned that there's going to be a new one. And, and if you if you think about it, like security at, at New York office buildings, when there was the first attack uh, on the, the World Trade Center, you know, people started thinking about security, but it kind of it disappeared pretty quickly. You know, after the, the, the World Trade Center centers came down, security was here to stay and it's never left despite the fact that there hasn't been another New York office building that's that's been taken down. So I, I think, you know, once is an interesting experience, twice, um, you know, is going to change things. So you, uh, from Texas, but spend a lot of time in California and uh, also from New York, LA is one of the most densely populated areas in the country. So is New York City. What's going to happen? Maybe not necessarily. Well, we can talk about what will happen in those markets, but these super populated, dense areas, uh, are we seeing the beginning stages of those becoming less dense and people leaving? I I, I think so. I think New York City is hopeless. I mean, I I really don't even know where I would start with them. First of all, they have a a government that has destroyed the economy. I, I, I call it Munchausen syndrome by policy. There's a uh, so Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a um, a condition where typically mothers poison their children to get sympathy, and then they get a lot of attention as being part of the the solution to making the child better. Um, so hospitals are very in tune with this. You know, we have politicians in in New York who are doing things to just literally destroy their their economies. And then they get on television all the time with rescue packages and things that that undo the the poison that they've inflicted on their 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 people. I think that even if there's a vaccine, it's going to be too late for New York. They cannot hold on. The restaurants, the stores, the theaters, uh, the hotels cannot make it until October, you know, or 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 later. And the the idea of putting Two people or four people in a in a elevator in a in a high rise New York building that normally has ten or fifteen people in that same elevator is insane. It's going to take four hours to to get to your office on the on the elevator. Um, the the commutes, you know, the 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 difference between driving in your own car and taking a packed commuter train to a packed subway to a packed sidewalk, and then being separated in the elevator so you're not near people is is crazy and not sustainable the the winner will be texas i mean they they could not hope for a better texas could not hope for a better situation than what new york and california to a bit of a lesser extent uh, are are doing and so when you think as you put your real estate investor hat on is it just let's wait three or four years for it to just continue to decline, I mean, is it is it even possible to kind of underwrite something in those markets right now? If if that thesis kind of proves true, I I think it would have to be. I mean, first of all, you you would have to be an optimist, which which I am generally, and you would have to come in at such a low basis that you could withstand a lot of a lot of disruption. But in in places like New York, that may be you know, 20 or 30% of the current value, not 20 or 30% off. And do you have to build trust back in the government or that 
you know, even getting there, if this happens again, you're not a victim to what's kind of going on right now. Like, do do you think do, does policy have to change for these environments to to get legs again or, you know, people that are used to it? And it's just kind of what you underwrite when you're buying in New York. I, I think you can hide behind your basis. You know, if you are pushing things and everything has to work, you're playing a dangerous uh, you're playing a dangerous game in those cities. I think that you know suburban spread out stuff in in Texas is going to look very 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 appealing. You know we were we were getting you know probably three or four hundred thousand people a year of of net inflow into Texas that could easily double over the next couple of years. Wow. Hotel wise, you own some hotels. How are your hotels doing? So the, the hotels are coming back. You know, I think that they're going to be different. The one uh, that we own in Crested Butte at the the ski resort um, seems to be very resilient. People are able to drive there for the most part. Um, it's in the middle of a great, you know, one of the most beautiful outdoor areas. So separation is, you know, is kind of a, a, a given there. Our golf resort in Phoenix deals mostly with with meetings and 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 events, and that's going to be a a, a long road back, I think. So we've talked about, um, you know, there's going to be hotel deals for sure. But even again, kind of underwriting, even if you can get something really cheap, you still have to make sure that people even will show up to something that you have a good basis on. Like, what are you looking for before you start buying up more hotels, which I'm sure that you'll be doing? I, I think really the basis, um, you have to look at a hotel and, and just assume you may have to close two thirds of it. You know, in other words, you can you can turn a, a 300 room hotel into a hundred room hotel if you want to. And if you have the um, the basis that that supports it, but the, the discounts are just not really there yet. There's a few things that kind of you deals that you kind of hear about. But the big the big discounts are coming in the next few months. And why aren't they here yet? Because most of these lenders have kind of this safe harbor that the the Fed granted that they didn't have to put bad loans on the books yet. It's a combination of of things. Some of it it just takes time. Some of the tenants have not even returned to work to to die. You know, they, they you have a restaurant that's closed. You have no idea whether they're closed and coming back or closed forever, they may not even know, but they will know very soon. The other thing is just the the legal system is depending on the state, it takes a period of time for these to kind of work through. I think we'll see the first the first wave from the debt REITs uh, will arrive in the next month or two, um, followed uh, three, three or four months later by the CMBS world. And then finally, uh, a year from now, the banks will be forced to um, to sell their loans. So if there's a massive amount of kind of delinquent and busted up loans coming to market, do folks that have traditionally bought real estate, you know, just by buying the asset, is it easy to kind of become maybe a buyer of debt? Or do you think of that as like two different skill sets? Well, I think if you if you buy debt, you have to be the lender. So it's not it's not a good idea to buy debt coveting the underlying asset that will get you in trouble. On the, on the other hand, the debt may be the place to, to enter the ecosystem. Although I think that 
the, the lenders are going to just start selling things. We're going to go back to a time that's going to look a lot like 2010, 11, and 12, where there were just so many things for sale that very often no one wanted them. No one was interested in them at almost any price. And given that now it's a health scare and again, even the, the basis is is basically all that matters, especially as it relates to hotels. Do you see it uh, on one end, you see retail and office and kind of entertainment properties tanking. At the other end, we hear about all this dry powder and everybody has all this money that they're probably, are they going to keep focusing on buying just cheap assets there? Or are we going to see a run up in industrial, multifamily, suburban office, all of that stuff is capital just kind of would rather flight to safety rather than go buy a distressed hotel that they don't know if they'll ever be full again? Well, I, I think there's going to be way more product than than capital. You know, and it's one thing to have the capital. It's another thing to pull the trigger, you know, into a, a deal that's losing money. There's there's not a lot of people who who do that. So probably multifamily, as long as it can still get cheap financing and industrial, uh, you know, seems to be pretty solid. You know, we'll see hotels and retail you know, collapse. Malls and business hotels in particular are 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 going to um, could continue losing. Uh, I would say lose a lot of their value. They've already lost a lot of their value, um, but malls could approach zero essentially. Yep. So you're not long Simon stock right now. I am not long Simon stock. No. Uh, <laughs> so. I've always admired you. You're you. Uh, I don't want to botch this, but you were very you were not an active buyer kind of post call it 2014, 2015, uh, when everybody else was, you know, taking advantage of the market. But if you look back at 09 and 10, you bought a lot in those years um, and you've positioned your company through multiple cycles to be most active during the downturn and kind of slow in the upswing, uh, which is makes perfect investment sense. So my next question would just be, have you bought any deals yet? And uh, when are you going to go on your buying spree again? So I've, I've done four deals, you know, in, in, uh, in the, the recent uh, two months, um, most of which, uh, you know, have, have closed. Uh, I, I financed the acquisition of uh, a building for someone else. Which is unusual, but you know we're happy to uh, to do it if we like the the asset. I bought a building in Memphis. It's a uh, an A minus uh, building from a triple net company for nine dollars per square foot. That was bizarre. We bought a golf course that was close to it for five hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and then uh, you know kind of a fun deal in buying a restaurant in Los Angeles. That, that we will continue to operate and buying the building. Um, so I, I think the the most active time will probably be a few months from now. Um, it's just taking a while for these these deals to get through their forbearance agreements and and through um, the legal process, and and then there'll be an avalanche of sales from the CMBS world first, and and the and the debt rates uh, as well. Is it complicated to buy a CMBS or a debt rate note any more complicated than it would be to buy something from like a community or a regional bank? No, it, it looks exactly the same when you um, 
when you split it out. And it's not it's not clear whether the the REITs will sell the note or or the or the actual asset, but there will there will be so much in the market. I think it'll be it'll be amazing. So it's it's time to be patient. And you know what we did is we built systems that allowed us to go through rapid expansion, and that's going to be that's going to be the difference between um, being able to buy a million or two million square feet a year and you know five to fifteen million square feet. The A minus property in Memphis for nine bucks a foot was it vacant or did it have a tenant in it? Um, it's largely vacant. It's probably ten percent occupied. You know, but it's it's a it's a COVID special uh, in two ways. Is number one, they happened to run the auction at a time when travel was effectively banned. So I, I feel like I was one of the few people who who saw it. Even people in Memphis weren't leaving their house to, during the auction time. And the other thing is that it's just it's a big suburban building with a massive parking amount, lots of outdoor space. Like if you were to design a building for the COVID age, this is effectively what it would look like. And your plan is, well, you bought it for nine bucks a foot, probably replacement cost is what? A couple hundred bucks a foot, maybe more? Yes. Yep. No, easily. You're just going to lease it back up? We're going to, we're going to lease it. We'll sell it. Uh, You know, we kind of run run several different scenarios all at the same time and see what the market is interested in. And you bought it off an auction site. I've never bought anything. Well, I bought residential properties off an auction site, but what's the typical like transaction process? Do you have to put up hard money day one and close in a certain amount of time or is it buyer dependent or is it a certain uh, structure everybody must follow? Most of, most of the auctions require you to have a an amount that's hard to bid you put up 10% of the purchase price the first day. So when you win, you basically have 24 hours to put up 10% of the purchase price, and then you close 30 days after your winning bid. So it's, it's, it's very rigid. There are no changes to the contract. You have to really do your due diligence before you bid. You bid. And it's, it's a great process because you kind of know where, where you stand. It also weeds out people who don't have the cash available. What are you going to do with the golf course? So the, the golf course is a bit of an experiment. We own a golf course in Phoenix that's run by Hilton and a company called Troon. So we, we've, we've been effectively in the golf course business now for uh, seven or eight years. But my theory is that it's possible to use technology to improve the operations of a golf course. And there are a lot of them for sale around the country. So this is going to be our our test case, see whether we can move the needle with our systems. And if we do, then really expand um, greatly into this uh, this segment. So just to paint, I, I, I know what systems you're talking about, but listeners might not. Like what, what would your technology, which is on Stimmons, like what are some like low-hanging fruit that you're capable of doing that you see like clear as day that other people aren't seeing? To improve so efficiency, I, I think it has to do with scheduling and maintenance and equipment and inspections. Uh, you know, golf courses are big. Uh, this is 185 acres, so you can't just kind of walk in and look around. 
you know, we feel that, that if we have a single system that rolls the entire experience into one place, we can massively change the cost of operating, um, have a big, big, big effect on quality and change the, the customer experience uh, greatly. If you, if you think about the way that, it, that um, you know, Uber changed the way that you get a taxi or, or, or a, a, a car service, you know, it just makes the transaction very easy. Technology and golf can, can work the same way. Bragging on you for a second, I've said it before, you're the best operator that I've ever uh, met. When you buy a building in Memphis that's relatively vacant, I'm not sure if that's a new market for y'all or not, but what is like the first 30 days after Boxer buys something? Like, what does those 30 days look like? What do y'all do? How do you get the asset, you know, on the platform and humming exactly how you would want it? Is there something that y'all do that maybe others don't? So as soon as soon as the building is put under contract, there are about 350 things that are that are tasks that are assigned to people. So we do we just don't miss things going in. You know, we meet will immediately and actually do now have um, plans that show spaces, either very large spaces, single offices, or uh, or mid-sized offices from about 700 to 2,500 square feet planned. It'll be very quickly on the website and we'll be able to test the market almost immediately. At the same time, we'll list the entire building for sale to see if there's a, a user who thinks they want to own the building. Very often they start off trying to um, buy their own building and then realize it's better to let someone else do it. So really in in 30 days, you've got a very good sense of what's going on and you have the building under control from a financial point of view. Jumping back a little bit to kind of the hotel world, uh, Airbnb, I guess, put out some report that their month of the second half of May was better. They had more activity the second month of May this year than they did the same two weeks in 2019. Does Airbnb uh, long term become a much bigger winner given, you know, they're, they're, it's not dense. It allows people to travel, stay in cool spots. Do you think they're a net beneficiary of this or are they going to have a tough time as well? It's hard. It's hard to say. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're dealing in largely an unregulated world. The question is whether the government will crack down on them or allow them to keep keep doing that. But there 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 really no safety standards or uh, legal compliance in in the vast majority of their their sites. Two of the things that have outpaced inflation, uh, maybe more than anything else, is uh, higher education, the cost of tuition, and the cost of these major sports teams. Do you have any any opinion on higher education and the sports world? I, well, I, th- I think that higher education needs to needs to to focus is that they've just gotten used to doing too many things that have nothing to do with education. Uh, you know, one of which is their their sports programs. You know, the the the, the cost structure is just is just too high at this point. So the the, the weaker the weaker schools are are going to have to really um, clamp down on it. And I think that the people's willingness to pay 
you know, that much money for something in a time of uncertainty, uh, you know, also decreases. I think that the professional sports teams, it's like talking about the art market. I mean, there's really no economics that supports these teams except for the price that they then sell at. So it's like looking at a Picasso and saying, what's the return? Well, you impress your friends, uh, you may get a date out of it, but it's not throwing off appreciable money um, unless you bought it, you know, well, the Picasso never, but the sports team, unless you bought it 20 years ago, there's no real return there. They're going to have a huge problem. I mean, they, they, they have unthinkable problems with their, their player contracts, their season ticket holders. And I, I think that even if they play to empty stadiums, that no one will watch it. If you pay attention to, um, televised games and see the extent to which they show the fans it's really more than you would think and i think that that's going to be a big uh that's going to be a big problem for them it's almost like showing a comedy without a laugh track it's very hard to watch (laughs) yeah i i watched the ufc fight the other night it was actually kind of interesting there was no crowds but the interesting part was you can actually hear them fighting you can hear the punches landing and all that which was a, a different experience and then in golf right now they're miking up the players and you can hear them talking a lot more which is interesting but those are more individual sports i guess in a in a team environment i agree it's going to be really tough to get jacked up about a you know dallas cowboys in a hundred thousand person stadium with nobody in there that's right yeah something like golf or tennis may actually may actually work um it'll it'll be interesting it's going to be hard to predict but i think that it's clear that basketball baseball and football are are in for a very rough ride we've talked a lot about real estate but you you own different businesses is there anything interesting coming out of this that piques your interest maybe an industry that you'd like to be in or something that uh you want to double down on or just kind of other interesting things outside of real estate I think that there's a lot that's going to go on in the car world that's very interesting. You know, this is this is not something necessarily new, but certainly in the in the in the dense transit cities will will transition to single car single car commutes. There, there, there's going to be a lot of interesting things in the technology there, the insurance, the kind of car as a service. I think that there's there's a lot a lot going on there that I'm excited about. So you think that like in like in LA more people might go back and buy a car rather than, you know, take the bus or uh some mass transit system. Yeah, I I I think especially as the autonomous driving, you know, gets better, the autonomous driving may not kind of take the exit and go to the stop sign and everything, but if you take most cars that have somewhat autonomous driving and you get on a freeway and just basically attach yourself to the car in front of you. I, I think we're we're very quickly going to be at the point where you can not pay attention to it, you know, on a on a straight uh on a straight freeway. And th- and that's going to change the commute if you can uh watch a movie or or text uh you know do the things you're not supposed to do. It changes the game for the uh the commute. The capital markets, as it relates to uh, real estate and kind of what you the patterns that you see more kind of early cycle 
there's more equity down, non-recourse is, is tougher to achieve. Like, what are you kind of expecting as, as we come back? Um, like, what should folks kind of be expecting from where they thought they would get loans, you know, 90 days ago to what they're probably going to be presented going forward? Well, I, I think that you can't even assume you're going to get a loan. Um, and your, your, your chances of being left at the altar are massively higher than, than they used to be because of all of the uncertainty. Um, you know, the, when, when the defaults really start, which the banks have not really been, um, acknowledging yet, um, they don't acknowledge the fact that, that if they told someone they don't have to pay interest for three months, it doesn't make it a performing loan, even though the government may allow them to call it that. You know, when, when these defaults start, the banks are going to absolutely stop making new loans. It's just going to be too um, too dangerous, and, and it's going to be a long time before they could have the assurance that a hotel will continue performing or that a, a retail space, uh, the, the, the tenants won't, uh, won't go out of business. You know, it's it's going to be very very hard in the loan world, and I think we're going to see a big rise in interest rates that reflect the uncertainty, and then at some point, interest rates rising that reflect um, inflation scares. So the treasury rate will stay low, but the spreads will grow basically, which is going to have a negative impact. Obviously, is that going to be hotel and retail related or could you see some assets again be being lent on and others no chance or is it just a mixed bag i i think that there are assets that that are definitely credit worthy you know uh industrial multifamily and and suburban suburban office at relatively low basis you know we'll probably still be able to find money Getting a hotel finance now or, or or retail is going to be virtually impossible until there's clarity. The, the 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 banks and the lenders just don't make enough money to take that kind of existential risk that the thing could um, lose all of its income. So we've heard a, a ton, and this was kind of earlier in COVID. Oh, it's different this time. The banks are much better capitalized than they have been in the past. Is that actually true? Are they better capitalized, or was that kind of early talk, not knowing how severe this would get? I think that was early talk. Is that, that banks, you know, most most commercial banks don't have the equity to withstand, you know, default in ten or fifteen or God forbid twenty percent of their loans, and and that's what we may see very quickly. As it relates to stimulus and PPP and the different stimulus packages, those are going to be running dry kind of in Q3. Do you think that, you know, once that runs dry, um, we're going to see kind of another dive once there's not money propping it up? Or is the government going to keep stimulus coming to keep everybody as close to even as possible? Well, it's, it's going to be a big cycle of destruction because tax revenues have got to be plummeting. You know, like nobody, I, I was joking with people in California. Now you get to know what it's like to live in Texas. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, no one here is making money. You're not going to be paying taxes. You know, obviously that uh, I'm referring to entrepreneurs and, you know, people who invest in real estate. I guess the, the doctors and the lawyers are still stuck with the the tax rate. But basically, we're going to see governments with a massive decrease in income and property taxes we're going to see the federal government massively increasing the money supply. 
um, massively increasing the debt, which we've been doing. So look, it it doesn't matter whether you're the government or my aunt, if you massively increase debt and massively decrease income, it doesn't end well. And Texas's property tax rates keep going up and up and up. Do you see that as like a lever that some of these states with high property tax, high property taxes continuing to use that as the way that they're going to keep their cities funded? I, I, I unfortunately, I think so. You know, the, 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 the appraisal amounts for next year, you know, are going to be dramatically lower. And the only way to keep the keep the income constant is is to keep raising the percentage rates. Just on kind of the question of uh, inflation, you know, you see even over the last 90 days, it's, you know, the Amazons and the big tech companies have just gotten stronger and stronger. And the thought is that because of technology today, it's why we're not seeing inflation like we used to. How do you poke a hole in that, that as we continue to build more and more tech, it's why we're printing all this money, but inflation isn't necessarily uh, rising to what some people would expect based on how it used to be? Well, the same, the very same technology is available in places with very high inflation. You know, so if you go to Nigeria or to Venezuela, they have technology as well. Um, and they also have inflation. So I, I've, for for a long time, as you know, I've been wrong about thinking that there's going to be massive inflation, but I'm I'm holding to that. I'm not ready to to give that up. If we increase the money supply at a faster rate than the economy is increasing, we're going to see inflation. So I'm going to ask a stupid question, but it's because we've talked a lot about inflation. What is bad about inflation? And what is good about inflation? So the bad thing about inflation is that it sends interest rates up. So if inflation were to have an extreme rise of, say, 10 percent, you know, then all of a sudden the the 10 year treasury would be 10 percent and your loan would cost 12 percent. Your rents would go up 10 percent. So your cost of capital, which is a very large expense, and if you're a triple net landlord, it's basically 100 percent of your expense could go up five times and your rent could go up 10 percent. So it takes a while. Over the long term, the rent will catch up with the inflation rate, and you'll be fine and happy that you own hard assets. But in the meantime, if there is a 2 or 3%, and, and remember, that's very, very low, historically rise in interest rates, virtually nothing out there can get refinanced. Like nothing works. Nothing covers. And that's going to be very, very, very disruptive. So how do you think about that? I mean, on one end, you might say, like, because nothing works, the tendency will be to never let them rise again, or else everything basically becomes, uh, has no value to it anymore, except for the new buyer. Do you think lower interest rates are it's just kind of a new world that we're living in, this, this uh, modern monetary theory and all that stuff? No, I, I think we're going to go back to high rates. So the, the opportunity is to buy hard assets and put long-term debt on them with fixed rate. you know, And that way, the loan becomes literally worth more than the building. But you, you, you do not want to be floating right now. It's, a, it's reckless. And if you are floating, maybe go to your bank and just say, hey, can we fix this? Or can we make this a fixed rate and try and negotiate that? 
I think it's a massive exposure. I mean, if you want to see what floating looks like, look at the oil companies. You know, their their rate, their interest rate is effectively the price of a barrel of oil, which they have very little control over on an individual basis. And when it goes up, they make a lot of money. And when it goes down, they just get crushed and go bankrupt. That's what interest rates are going to do to the real estate world, just in the reverse. The positive to multifamily has always been kind of the Fannie and Freddie and their willingness to lend. And uh, they have, you know, you can buy 30-year notes, and uh, but they don't really have that in commercial. Like one, and I don't know the answer to this, why isn't there like a Fannie or a Freddie loan for commercial properties? And do you see maybe the government starting to lend on commercial as a way to give people kind of that long-term debt? Because right now, I guess the longest term you can get is 10 years in the commercial world, mostly. But it would be nice to buy things with 30-year notes. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a kind of a bizarre subsidy that has to do with a interest by the government in promoting um, housing, you know, because the people in houses tend to be voters. Um, so they're, they're the beneficiary of these things. I, I'm not sure how long it's even going to stay around in the housing market. And there's really no path to really building affordable housing right now based on where construction costs are, land costs, and, you know, really kind of pivoting to a world where you're starting to see like shipping containers being repurposed and these micro units, I mean, the cost of housing has gotten uh, super high. Do you see any path to starting to truly build at scale affordable housing that cities will accept and that people will want to live in? Or are we just going to keep seeing housing getting more and more expensive? Well, I think I think it's possible to build, you know, what anyone would call affordable housing in suburban locations. You know, you should be able to build a single family house for about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you know, on a, you know, in a, a kind of a low cost suburban location. The 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 problem is the kind of the rules and the taxes and the labor costs and, and everything on, on the coast turn that into six hundred thousand. And and that's why that's why people are continuing to come to Texas is that you can you can you can live twenty miles outside of Houston in a, in a house that's well under two hundred thousand dollars. As it relates to Houston, which has uh, historically been super energy independent, but has been kind of weaning off that as the years go by, is Houston positioned well uh, coming out of this? I mean, just given that it's in Texas, that's a positive. But is there anything about Houston that excites you or scares you? I, I think the um, you know the cost structure, the transportation, the ability to use cars, you know the, the lack of density really leaves Houston in a in a fantastic location. I, I would really say the same about Dallas um, as well. Certainly, the the, the metroplex not, doesn't have to be the city. Uh, Austin's a little a little more challenging, um, and San Antonio just never seems to get the the excitement of the other three cities and i'm still don't know why all right well we're getting to the end i'll kind of end it on we, you know we've just talked a lot about in the next couple quarters we're going to start seeing deals start really coming to the market quickly and there's going to be a lot of them do you think that we're past the worst of it so far or the worst is yet to come um maybe not as related to like 
uh, the actual COVID and, and the health portion, but like the economy is, you've always said that when a tidal wave comes, the first wave's big, it hits everybody, goes away, everybody goes back out to the beach, and then the tidal wave comes. Do you see it differently this time? Or, or like, how do you see the rest of this year playing out? I think it's going to get much worse. Um, it's going to get dramatically worse in, in many places is, is that, that we just, we, we, we haven't seen the beginning of the economic disaster that a lot of these policies have created. And, and I'll, I'll go back to the fact that we need to let the young people with no pre-existing conditions back out and just un, 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 unrestricted. It's it's the only it's the only way I see of kind of preserving what we've spent generations building. Is that even possible, uh, given the political environment and social media? Is it is it even possible to get to that point based on where you see we are today? I think that we'll see um, states adopt that policy in in different variations, and we'll have winners and losers. And and this is you know Texas being a massive winner and the, the, the coasts, uh, you know, being massive losers. Yep. That's all I got for today. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Sorry. You know, look, I'm, I'm, uh, I remain very optimistic about the, uh, the long term, but I think we've got to be realistic about the short term. Yep. And that's why I always love chatting with you. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.